think we've heard of that before Stranger stories every day Wonder what tomorrow's gonna bring So listen friends, we'll blow your mind With the finest nonsense we could find Might be true, and that's the weirdest thing Hi! Hi! <laughs> <laughs> Alright, um, okay, so I'm Amelia Ampuero And I am Scotty Milder and we're two best friends, and we like to talk about the weirdest stuff we can find on the internet. Uh, yeah. So welcome to the very first episode of The, the Weirdest, weirdest thing. thing. Yay! Yeah. So just a little bit, uh, uh, if you guys don't know us, uh, my name is Scotty Milder. I am a filmmaker and a horror author. We're both based in Albuquerque. Yeah. I, oh, is that me now? Yeah. Um, I'm... <laughs> <laughs> I'm Amelia Amparo. Uh, I am a theater artist uh, and uh, I guess just sort of general aficionado of weird stuff like Scotty is. Yeah. Um, and so we basically got together during this pandemic and decided we like to talk about the weirdest stuff we can find. Maybe people will want to listen to us talk about that. Yeah. And so that's what we're going to do. So, so here we are. Thank you for joining. <laughs> <laughs> All like two people. All two of you. <laughs> All right. So, uh, well, I guess I'm going to kick this off. So we have two stories this week um, and they both have like weird, creepy literary connections. So I'm going to tell the story of the Tambora volcano of 1815 and how it led to the creation of the two greatest literary monsters of all time. Yay! Um, So to first to, to talk about Tambora, it's, it's not that well known today, but to get a sense of the size of this volcano, uh, it's uh, useful to know a little bit about the volcanic ex- explosivity index. Oh, jeez. Um, okay. Yeah. So I'm going to try and keep <laughs> this part short. Like this is not like a physics class or anything. But Okay. Uh, so the VEI, it's basically uh, the equivalent. It's like the volcanic equivalent of the Richter scale. And they calculate it based on the mass of material that is ejected from a volcano. That um, is ejected from a volcano? Yeah, exactly. So, okay. you know. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. That's my technical definition of the VEI. So, uh, like, and I think the volcano that most people of our generation or uh, around our age know or remember would be Mount St. Helens. Oh, God. Um, okay. Yeah. So that happened in 1980 in Washington State, and it was a VEI-5 explosion. So just to give a sense of how powerful Mount St. Helens was, it had an ash column of 12 miles into the sky, um, and the energy equivalent released by Mount St. Helens was about 27,000 Hiroshima-style atom bombs. What the, what? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Seriously? And this is not even like really that big of a volcano compared to some of the other ones. Um, What the fuck? Yeah. It also, it ejected more than a a one cubic mile of material. And uh, another VEI-5 explosion would be like Mount Vesuvius, uh, which of course, 7980 destroyed the city of Pompeii. Oh, my God. Um, so VEI-5 explosions are not that rare, or eruptions, I should say, are not that rare. And then, like, like if you look at, like, the Hawaii volcanoes, they're like a VEI-1 or VEI-2, something okay. like that. Um, well, like the Richter scale, the VEI goes up exponentially. So when you go to VEI-6, these are 10 times the power of VEI-5. So, 
like the most famous VEI six uh, in human history is probably Krakatoa. Right. And that was 1883 in Indonesia. And Indonesia is where like a lot of these vulca- volcanoes happen. So Krakatoa had an ash column that was 17 miles high. My God. The blast from Krakatoa. Krakatoa. <laughs> <laughs> it was heard nearly 3,000 miles away. Um, oh, and the tsunamis and the explosion itself killed more than 30,000 people oh uh, directly. God. And it was so powerful that it actually ruptured eardrums of sailors about 40 miles away from the blast. 40 miles away. Yeah. So like the sound wave, the pressure wave ruptured eardrums 40 miles away. Oh my God. So that's, uh, so that's a VEI six. Now we move on to the VEI seven explosions and that's what Tambora was. Okay. Um, So other VEI, so this would be a hundred times greater than Mount St. Helens. And remember Mount St. Helens is like 27,000, Hiroshima's uh so times that by a hundred times and you get Mount Tambora another uh famous uh VI7 explosion actually is right here in New Mexico the Valle <gasps> Caldera yeah. oh yeah, yeah shout the, out yep yeah, <laughs> shout out to <laughs> the 505 <laughs> <laughs> um yeah Valle Caldera uh 1.2 million years ago that was a VEI7 uh, also, the Thera uh, eruption from 1620 BC, which uh, was in the Mediterranean Sea. It's on the Greek island of Santorini. And if you ever see a picture of Santorini today, it just looks like a fingernail, like a crescent. Yeah. Um, because it used to be a mountain, but it just exploded. And Thera destroyed the Minoan civilization of Crete. And the Minoans were the ones who had like Theseus and the Minotaur and all those. Yeah. Um, and they actually think that the Thera volcano might be the root of all the stories of the lost continent of Atlantis and how it destroyed the Minoans. Um, that oh. may be the root of the Atlantis myth. Okay. Um, and then you have Tambora, which was 1815. So Tambora, uh, it was a VEI-7. It's the most powerful volcano that has ever erupted in recorded human history. Um, 10 times more powerful than Krakatoa, 100 times roughly more powerful than Mount St. Helens, if you go by the VEI scale. Can, um, I, can I ask a question yeah. real fast? What's like the tippy top of, the, of that scale? Oh, yeah. So then once you get beyond the VEI-7s, you get into the super volcanoes. Um, oh. and it, that, it, they call it VEI-8, but from, I, from what I've read, they're sort of like, yeah, there's really nothing beyond VEI-8 because no matter how big they are, the destruction is so catastrophic that it's just almost like incalculable. So that's like, like the Yellowstone caldera. Okay. Or I just read about one that was like way bigger. That was in Utah called, I think Wawa Springs. Um, what? Okay. It was like 30 million years ago, I think. Okay. And then we've had one super volcano in human history. Uh, the um, uh, Lake Taupo which I believe I didn't write it down, but I think it's in New Zealand. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Shoddy research off the (laughs) (laughs) get-go. I do remember though, reading about it, it was 74,000 years ago. And that one's famous because they actually think that almost wiped out the human species, like early in the human species. It created a population bottleneck. It maybe reduced human beings down to like 10,000 people. What? So yeah, once you get into those super volcanoes, it's just, it's like, I mean, it's 
the apocalypse essentially <laughs> well that's that's nightmare fodder okay yeah. now now you're giving me super volcano anxiety <laughs> oh well, one of these episodes i should do decade volcanoes like, the most <laughs> oh, dangerous God. volcanoes in the world <laughs> um <sighs> but anyway so uh tambora was not a super volcano it was level below that but it is the most powerful one in recorded human history like even thera which was probably roughly the same size this was kind of before people were writing shit down so okay um so 1815 uh, mount tambora uh, it's and it's still active by the way it's on the island of sambawa in present-day indonesia and at that time it was part of the dutch east indies so it was, uh, there was a population of natives, um, and I wasn't able to find a lot of information on them. They were just called the Tambora culture, quote unquote. Mm-hmm. Um, but they did have a language that was completely lost in the blast because they were all just wiped out. And there was also the Dutch East Indies Company essentially owned Sumbawa, colonized it, and they had established a coffee plantation on the side of the mountain. Okay. Um, it had been dormant for centuries. And then in around 1812, it kind of started to wake up. So there were rumbles. There was a dark cloud at the summit. But like, you know, no, nobody knew. You know, everyone knew it was a volcano, but no one had any idea that it was going to be as devastating as it was. But like, okay, sorry. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You're sitting on an island that is a volcano. Mm-hmm. And it starts to rumble. <laughs> Like, and and a black cloud appears and nobody I was mean, like, ah, we're going to bounce. We're going to like grab this like, coffee and toot toot on out of here. Yeah. Like, no judgment. You know, <laughs> we'll not speak ill of the dead, but like I would have gotten the fuck out of there. <laughs> um, but also, you know, it's like, why did we build like cities right next to Mount Rainier and Mount Hood in this country? You know, like. People okay. just do True. this, you know. But yeah, yeah and that I'm, is I'm with that you is, on like that. that is not at all to be like you particular people, but rather humanity in general. Exactly. Um. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, maybe like the moral of the story is don't don't live next to a volcano. You know. Okay. Well, then we all have to move. Yeah, I mean, we're a little too close to Yellowstone for comfort. <laughs> well, we've got um, our volcanoes here. Are they still active? I thought they I mean, were all extinct. I don't know, but I, I think I but again I think that's like human hubris to be like <laughs> you know true. what, we like really think that these are extinct and they're, it's fine and then done. one day. Yeah. yeah. We conquered nature. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> sticked sticked our little flag in nature and we're yeah, like and done. you know, America, so obviously it's not <laughs> happening. Um <laughs> so anyway, yes. so it started it started making noise around eighteen twelve. Dark cloud some some uh earthquakes etc um and then on april 5th 1815 uh mountain bora erupted catastrophically and i was not able to find a lot of like actual witness accounts and i think the reason why is like anyone who is close enough to witness it probably died yeah like um uh so there are a lot of accounts of like what people heard far away and i found one quote it was just on Wikipedia, but I was I tried to figure out who said it, and I couldn't uh, find the actual quote. But someone re- uh, described the mountain having turned into liquid fire. Yeah, <laughs> and it was a awful. big ass fucking mountain. It was like fifteen thousand feet, so it's like the big peaks in Colorado size, you know. Ugh. 
um, from sea level. So like imagine, you know, Indonesia is basically at sea level. So you have 15,000 yeah. feet of mountain. So it, it erupted on April 5th. It started its eruption, I should say, on April 5th, 1815. Loud detonations were heard as far away as the Maluka Islands, which were near New Guinea, and that was about 870 miles away. A British military commander in Java, which was nearly 400 miles away, actually thought the sounds were cannon blasts. And he thought that someone uh, was invade because this is kind of in the midst of the Napoleonic Wars. Mm-hmm. So I guess he thought like the French are invading Java and like deployed <laughs> a bunch of troops to defend the island. Against <laughs> Meanwhile, four hundred miles away, this mountain is exploding. Uh. Um, the so this is the early phase of the eruption. If you remember, I said uh, the ash column for Mount St. Helens got up to twelve miles. This in the early phase, the ash column got up to eighteen miles. Uh, so what is what is an ash column? So it's like the big column of smoke and ash you see come out of like whenever you see pictures of volcano, you have the pyroclast, you have the lava, you have the pyroclastic mm-hmm. flows, which you know come down come down the mountain, and then the ash column goes up into the sky, and that's what gets into the atmosphere. Okay. Um. So and it was for this one. It was eighteen miles. Eighteen miles in the early phase. Um, okay. The the eruption took place basically over five days. Oh um, my god! Yeah. <laughs> Jesus. Um, so eighteen miles high, uh, ash uh, ash column, uh, and then the ash began to fall on East Java, which was about uh, again about four hundred five hundred miles away uh, between April sixth and tenth. And I found there, like I said, there are a bunch of witness accounts uh, from people who were like on neighboring islands, not a lot from people who actually saw the volcano. Mm-hmm. Um, so here's one from the island of Banyuwangi. I know I'm getting all these names wrong. Banyuwangi, which is 260 miles away. So it says, quote, at 10 p.m. of the 1st of April, we heard a noise resembling a cannonade, which lasted an interval, intervals till 9 o'clock the next day. It continued at times loud, at others resembling distant thunder. But on the night of the 10th, the explosions became truly tremendous, uh, frequently shaking the earth and sea violently. Towards mo- morning, they again slackened and continued to lessen gradually till the 14th, when they ceased altogether on the morning of the 3rd. So, and then it says, ashes began to fall like fine snow, and in the course of the day, they were half an inch deep on the ground. Again, this is like almost 300 miles away. Um, From that time till the 11th, the air was constantly impregnated with them to such a degree that it was unpleasant to stir out of the doors. Uh, This is obviously a British (laughs) person, I think. On the morning of the 11th, the I'm so bothered by it. (laughs) I would like to go out of the doors, please. (laughs) (laughs) Could you please quiet with your volcano? I would like to go out of the doors. Um, And he continues, on the morning of the 11th, the opposite shore of Bali was completely obscured in a dense cloud, which gradually approached the Java shore. So, and it goes on and on and on. But, you know, 300 miles away, this is what's going on. So you can imagine what it was like right there. Um, So it hit hit its climactic phase on April 10th. This is where the quote where I couldn't find out who said it, uh, said the mountain turned into liquid fire. Three three, it was ejecting three plumes of material that all merged um, into one single massive plume, started to rain pumice stones. There were um, tsunamis. I read some of the estimates of the tsunamis reached like 98 feet high. 
Oh um, my god! So hundred foot tsunamis. Uh, there were nine point eight cubic miles of material ejected, weighing about ten billion tons. So remember, Mount St. Helens ejected about a mile worth of material. This is mm-hmm. nine point eight cubic miles of material. Jesus. Um, and then it went from a fifteen thousand foot elevation down to less than ten thousand feet. So basically, cut the top off. So no. it 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 literally <laughs> it literally blew its top like it, it was blew its like, top. Whoosh. Yes, <laughs> exactly. Okay. Jesus. So, the tsunami caused estimates are around a hundred thousand deaths directly. Um, so these were people who died because of the bl- the blast and the ash. Okay. Uh, the ash column ultimately reached twenty seven miles into the sky. And so just for a little bit of context, uh, the stratosphere starts at about 12 and a half miles. What the fuck? Yeah. So it's like this ash column's uh, like practically getting into space at this point. I, I just wonder, because at that point that has to be visible from space. Oh, yeah. And I just like imagine little alien and his UFO like bzzz, flying around. <laughs> Wait, what the fuck is that? <laughs> Wait, 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 wait. Hold up, hold up, hold up. Hold up, guys. Get out. <laughs> did, you, did you fucking see that? <laughs> oh, my um, God. That's yeah. nuts. Yeah. So, so that's the volcano. This caused what was called the year without a summer. Okay. Uh, which was uh, 1816. So, of course, ejecting all this material into the stratosphere, it basically created a volcanic, a worldwide volcanic ash cloud. And from what I read, it mostly affected the northern hemisphere. So I don't know, uh, jet streams or something. It, it carried it okay. into the northern. <laughs> yeah, whatever. Um, whatever doesn't matter. Uh, now I didn't have time to read up on this, but apparently there was also in 1808 a mystery eruption of what? something in the South Pacific. Um, and I want to know more what this mystery eruption is. But they think it was a VEI-6, so like Krakatoa level. But no one knew about oh. it at the time. But I think they had discovered, like, in the 90s, I think I was reading, mm-hmm. like, through Antarctic ice cores that, like, oh, shit, there was another massive volcano that happened around the same time as Tambora. Oh, wow. Um, so they think this added to the year without summer. Okay. So basically, you know, we get this, this massive cloud of ash and material just enveloping the Northern hemisphere. Um, So it created the most extreme weather event for 1300 years. Uh, They said that global temperatures dropped about three degrees Fahrenheit. And you got to always remember that that's an average. That's like a global average. So um, if it was mostly affecting the Northern hemisphere, I mean, the, the temperatures was dropping precipitously. So for instance, in China, the monsoon season was disrupted. It caused massive flooding of the Yangtze river and all of its tributaries. And this led to massive famine. And this is like the story of this volcano is it was just like famine, famine, famine everywhere. Oh my God. Um, and then in Europe, Europe was already dealing with a period of cooling called the Little Ice Age, and I didn't look up what was causing that. But basically, Europe was already mm-hmm. cold. They were already having trouble with, like, crop yields and stuff, and then this happened. So it, it caused massive rainfall across uh, both Britain and the continent of Europe and then led to widespread crop failures and famines. It also sparked an uh, epidemic of typhus, which uh, went through Europe from 1816 to 1819, 
Um, probably from all the uh, like malnutrition and famine, you know, leads okay. to disease. And then in Switzerland, and Switzerland's going to be important uh, shortly, uh, temperatures okay. got so cold that an ice dam formed below the Gietru Glacier uh, way up in the Alps. And even though engineers were trying to break this ice dam, they weren't able to until it finally collapsed, which led to a big avalanche that killed 40 people. And oh then my in, God. Yeah. <laughs> so this volcano just was like, it just fucked go fuck everything. yourself. Yeah. <laughs> Basically, oh all, all you people, go fuck yourself. <laughs> Um, so in North America, there was a dry fog, quote unquote, dry fog that was reported all over like New England, um, and basically the East coast of the U S and what it was, was basically this, um, this just big volcanic cloud up in the stratosphere that wouldn't go away. And, and, you know, there were all these comments made about like, there's this strange dry fog, but we wonder why like the winds don't seem to do anything about it. And it's like, well, cause it's 27 miles high. Like, Oh wow. Yeah. Uh, and it dimmed the sunlight so much that you could actually look at the sun with the naked eye and see the sunspots. Yeah. That's it. It's just insane. That's insanity. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I had to, I feel like people had to think that the world was ending. Oh, well, I think, uh, well, I'm sure like around Java and in Indonesia, they sure, they sure did. Um, <laughs> but but I think, the, 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 I think the rest in, of the world was like, how strange. Well, they were just like, this is odd. Like, I, I don't think people really connected the two. Like there were sort of like, hmm, it sounds like there was some big uh, volcano in Indonesia. Oh, and by the way, all our crops are dying. And it's yeah. snowing in June, but I don't and think we've got this dry like, fog. But I would think, like, if you're looking through this dry fog and you can actually see the sun and the sunspots, like, whether you know what's going on or not, you're just kind of like, this isn't right, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, and there are all these paint, and I I forgot to look up. I'll see if I can find a picture. Maybe we'll post it on our um, uh, Facebook page. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there's all these paintings from the time that show this like kind of orangey sky. Ooh. And they think this was the dry fog, quote unquote. Another little trivia about Krakatoa, by the way. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of people think that the red sky, if you look at Edvard Munch's The Scream painting, yeah. that red sky comes from Krakatoa. Because it had a similar, not as bad, but similar effect. Um, wow. Wow, yeah. wow, wow. Okay. So, uh, uh, so like in Europe, you know, temperatures dropped, there were rains, and then there were snows uh, in like June in new england uh, all the way down into pennsylvania they had lakes freezing over um snow fell june 6th through 7th uh june 6th through 7th mm-hmm. all over new england as far south as albany new york and so people gave the year uh a couple nicknames in germany they're calling it year of the beggar <laughs> and then <laughs> um okay. in uh the u.s they called it 1800 and froze to death um, <laughs> that's the stupidest title. <laughs> like year of the beggar okay i mean it's yeah, got a it's got a definite got like, mood to it like an epic quality <laughs> that's the most like fox news worthy exactly. <laughs> nickname for something <laughs> the chiron across the bottom of the screen 1800 and froze to death <laughs> and and this year without they call 1816 the year without a summer but this weather event lasted for years i mean up into like 1819 1820 you know Whoa. stuff like that so this leads to uh the lake geneva group so we all know, we've all heard of Mary Shelley. Mm-hmm. She was born in 1797 uh, in uh, England. 
She's the daughter of an anarchist and political philosopher, this guy, William Godwin. And then his wife was an early feminist. Her name was Mary Wollstonecraft. Mary Shelley, uh, when she was a teenager, she struck up a friendship with Piercy Bish Shelley. Okay. Um, Piercy Shelley was one of the, the premier romantic poets of his day. And he was actually married at the time, but in a, in a tempestuous uh, relationship. And you said, you said Mary Shelley met him when she was a teenager. She was, uh, let's see, I think they think she met him in 1912. So she would have been like 15. Okay. Um, Yeah. Um, And he was just a little bit older. He was born in 1792. So he would have been like in his twenties. He wasn't like some lecherous, like 50 year old or something, but still like not necessarily. (laughs) appropriate (laughs) yeah uh yeah i mean i know like times were different and all that good stuff but he was fucking 15 yeah she was 15 he was married he was uh in his 20s he was he became estranged from his wife around 1814 and then uh he and mary uh started meeting in secret and piercy shelley was a friend of the family and was um kind of a devotee of her father this William Godwin, who was this like really radical political thinker. I mean, he was an early, like I said, early anarchist. Um, mm-hmm. And Piercy, so Piercy kind of hero worshipped her father. And so they went to her father and declared their love for one another. And their, her father, mm-hmm. uh, all of a sudden, he did not approve. Um, and I've read a few reasons for why this may be the case. Um, one is that just he's a straight up hypocrite because um well he he tried to sabotage the relationship because he wanted to quote preserve mary's spotless fame which basically means like he doesn't want her having sex is well okay hold on what was she what was what was she famous for at this time nothing she was just teenage daughter of this this famous philosopher um i mean i think spotless fame basically means like virtue well because it's like a little grandiose (laughs) right and the reason i was asking was because i also i i mean i would assume at this point there was still you know things like dowries and stuff and that the dad was like i don't want any like i don't want anything that's going to be hers or that she is going to do in life to for you to have any ownership of that but that's also 100 percent me giving him a lot of credit it probably (laughs) just meant her virginity well actually i think it mostly meant her virginity and also actually i mean her family didn't have a lot of money so she wouldn't have had much of a dowry and piercy came from this very rich aristocratic family that he was actually um estranged from himself interesting but he had actually had been loaning her father money um to keep keep them afloat Mm -hmm. and so one of the reasons i read is a possibility for why he was um uh not super into this relationship was that piercy had sort of cut off the spigot like said he was going to stop essentially paying his bills Mm. um but he was like the dude was a hypocrite because he he had talked about like he had referred to marriage as a repressive monopoly before how do you think his wife felt about that? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, well, she was, she was, this, I mean, she was this famous feminist, so she was probably like, fucking right, it's a repressive monopoly. Yeah. 
but I don't know. <laughs> true, true. She's like, this, yeah, this sucks. I mean, I, the way I read it is Mary's dad was all about, like, marriage is repressive. I need to be free. And then it's his daughter, and he's, like, trying to put a chastity belt on like yeah 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 I, so that's where I, I i don't have a lot of sympathy for him i think he was just kind of a hypocrite um, okay or just pissed off that he wasn't getting any money anymore mm. um so and piercy was already really famous he was this famous romantic poet um so so and he had a pregnant wife his wife who he was estranged from Come was on. actually pregnant <laughs> jesus so uh you know there was this kind of ensuing scandal that was building around this relationship Mm -hmm. so they were like fuck this and took off to europe so in 1814 they went to france to get away from the family and or the two families i should say and the the scandal they took her stepsister claire with them and then she uh piercy was really good friends with lord byron who's going to be important here in a minute okay and later on claire got pregnant by lord byron so it's just like these it's like this soap opera like they're all fucking each other like yeah um you know and then they left of course they left piercy's pregnant wife in england so you know (laughs) i mean i don't really blame mary for any of this but i sort of get the impression piercy although it does sound like he was very very supportive of her he was very supportive of mary and was very like egalitarian with her but still, mm-hmm. he seems like kind of a scuzzbag, <laughs> to be honest. Well, yeah. I mean, his name is Piercy, so there's that. <laughs> yeah, that, that never helps. We're going to get a lot of people named Piercy writing in. Um, <laughs> Who is named Piercy? If, if anybody is named Piercy. Please email you, us. <laughs> please email us. <laughs> at an email address that we don't have yeah. yet yeah oh yeah we do to set that up yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but so so they went to france for a while they bounced around but france was in the middle of this massive i mean it was still the napoleonic wars going on so it wasn't the best place to be so they actually went back to england for a little bit um but they had been cut off by both of their families and the scandal was still brewing and so they were like again they were like fuck this and they decided to go to switzerland in 1816 which was of course the year without summer Okay. Yeah, I think everyone who anyone who's listening knows what I'm building up to. This is the creation of Frankenstein. Okay. Um, everyone knows the kind of myth around like how Frankenstein came to be, which is like Piercy Shelley and uh, Mary Shelley at the time was still. I don't believe they were married yet, although she did have a baby by him at some point. Okay. Yeah, you know, but you know they're hanging out with Lord Byron in this nice beautiful villa on the shores of lake geneva and lord byron's like why don't we pass the time by telling ghost stories and so they wrote these lovely little ghost stories and that's like i, I love like your editorializing of this that you're like like they were all namby pamby like Woo, yeah. wouldn't it be delightful well that i mean but that is like kind of the cliche and like if you watch the movie bride of frankenstein they have a version of that like at the beginning of the movie, like bookends mm-hmm. the movie where you see Mary Shelley telling the story of Frankenstein and they're like sitting around drinking cognac and like of being course. lovely English people. And, okay. and I mean, that's like kind of what happened, but like it was also in the backdrop of this massive weather event. Right. Um, they had gone to Geneva where uh, uh, Lord Byron was staying at a place called the Via Diodata which was a, a big mansion that was near Lake Geneva. And he was staying there with 
his personal physician, John Polidori. And I don't know if this is true. I, I, I ran out of time to look into this, but I think Lord Byron had uh, tuberculosis. If I'm wrong, okay. like, sorry, I'll correct next time. And so John Polidori was his like personal physician okay. helping treat him for tuberculosis. Which is really probably just administering opium. Yeah. I mean, Let's there's also, honest. yeah, well, that that's, <laughs> I think that's largely true. And also I think like there are all sorts of rumors that like Lord Byron had syphilis and all sorts of things. Like, like Percy Shelley was. Everybody had syphilis back then. Yeah. Like I think Percy Shelley sounds like kind of a D bag, Mm -hmm. but like Lord Byron, he was just a fucking cad. Like he was just (laughs) having sex everywhere he went basically. And he was also like super famous romantic poet. So, uh, so he was staying at the Villa Diodata and the plan was, well, let's go stay near Lord Byron and we'll have this lovely summer on Lake Geneva. But then they get there and it's just rain and floods and famines. And basically they were not able to leave the house. And they went there with her uh, stepsister, Claire, who was already pregnant by Lord Byron. So she's trying to get away from the scandal as well. Okay. Um, Good grief. They weren't actually all staying together. Uh, Byron and Polidari were staying at the Via Diodata, and then Piercy and Mary rented a nearby uh, villa. So they, they ended up, they were just bored and stuck inside the whole time. And because of this, uh, Mary says, there's a quote from her where she says, it proved a wet and ungenial summer. An incessant rain often confined us for days to the house. Meanwhile, people are like starving to death. And yeah. And she's like, and my trip has been badly diminished. Exactly. <laughs> um, meh. meh. So one night, you know, just trying to pass the time because they had nothing else to do. They started reading aloud from this book called the Phantasmagoriana, which was a collection of uh, German ghost stories. Okay. And this led Lord Byron to have the idea that they should all sit down and write their own ghost, ghost stories and horror stories. Um, and one thing I love about this is like you have two of the greatest writers in the English language at the time. And I can just imagine Byron and Piercy were like, oh, we're going to show them all like with the beauty of our prose and everything. <laughs> and like no one ga- gives two shits about what they wrote right. during that time. But there were actually two uh, works of literature that came out of that that were important. So the first, of course, the famous one was Mary Shelley. She, uh, so she has a quote. She, she wasn't able to think of the story at first. I think she was really intimidated by, you know, her husband is this great romantic poet. Right. Lord Byron is this celebrated author. And she's like, wait, I'm supposed to compete with these guys? So she couldn't think up a story. And so her quote is, uh, have you thought of a story? Have you thought of a story? I was asked this each morning. And each morning I was forced to reply with a mortifying negative. Um, <laughs> poor thing. <laughs> poor thing, I know. She's um, like, but stop asking. I'll let yeah. you know. I will let you know the second I have a story, guys. Yeah, I mean, I think I, like, that's exactly what I imagine. <laughs> Well, and I, and I also like, again, here I'm editorializing a little bit. I just imagine like, maybe not Piercy. I'm going to give him a little bit more credit, but I just imagine Lord Byron being like, "Mm, you don't have a story yet. Mm, Pity, you know, kind of. Right. What a girl. Yeah. What a girl. (laughs) Um, So Piercy wrote something that was called Fragments of a Ghost Story. And basically from what I was able to uh, discern from this, he was just transcribing earlier ghost stories that had been told by a guy named Matthew Lewis, who's famous for writing The Monk, which is considered sort of the first great Gothic novel. Okay. So he's just like copying someone else's stories. Byron 
started a story also called The Fragment, or I've also seen it listed as Fragment of a Novel, and he never actually finished it. But it was, uh, it actually had a vampire theme. Okay. Mary, still trying to come up with a story, a few days later, they're sitting around uh, one night in June, and they're talking about science and uh, the subject of the possibility of reanimating corpses came up. Basically, the uh, there was a lot of focus on what at the time was called galvanism, which was basically the idea of passing electrical currents through chemicals and creating changes. Okay. And they thought, well, maybe we can reanimate a corpse this way. So, and this just seems like such a like freshman in college, you're sitting around smoking pot, like, whoa, what you if you <laughs> had enough electricity, you could totally reanimate a corpse. I just, um, I think it's fascinating that it feels like humans have always been interested in and sort of obsessed with bringing people back from the dead. Oh, yeah. Um, which, to me is interesting in that if you sort of fall under the the umbrella of i mean really any kind of organized religion that yeah. like that should be necessary because yeah. you'd be literally it'd be like that episode of buffy you'd be literally ripping these people from heaven mm-hmm. to have them come back in a rotting body so that you could like sit there and look at them well and i think this is part of what disturbed mary uh, oh, okay. Because, uh, you know, and, and this is like the age of enlightenment. So there was this right. like, we're going to get rid of all these medieval superstitions and, you okay. know, science. But Mary's like, should we be doing this? Um, this sounds like a bad idea. So she went home that night and she lay in bed. She couldn't get to sleep and, and she had a terrifying fantasy. And so this is her quote. She says, I saw the pale student of unhallowed arts kneeling beside the thing he had put together. I saw the hideous phantasm of a man stretched out and then on the working of some powerful engine show signs of life and stir with an uneasy half vital motion. Frightful must it be for supremely frightful would be the effect of any human endeavor to mock the stupendous mechanism of the creator of the world. So she was definitely like, this is God's job. This isn't our job. Yeah. Um, so she said so that there was her story. And she sat down, started writing it, and it was originally going to be a short story, but it just kind of kept growing and growing. And Piercy, this is where I like, I say I do want to give Piercy a little bit of credit, even though, okay, you know, fine. scuzzy guy macking on a 15-year-old. but um, <laughs> With a pregnant wife. With a pregnant wife back home. But he was very supportive of her, and, and he was basically like, you should expand this into a novel. This is really good. It's called Frankenstein or the Modern, I can't talk. Frankenstein or the modern Prometheus. She wrote it throughout 1816 and 1817. And she and Piercy collaborated on it to some extent, um, which has been uh, somewhat controversial because the general thought is that he was basically just working as like an editor. You know, he Mm. was just helping her like what any editor or publisher would do, just like helping her condense her ideas, structure the story a little bit do some uh, little line edits here and there, probably fixing some typos, although she's not typing, of course. Uh, but a bunch of assholes over the years have tried to, like, there's there's a manuscript where we see he wrote a bunch of corrections okay. in the margin. And so they're like, see, actually, Piercy Shelley wrote Frankenstein. It wasn't Mary Shelley. And I'm like, fuck off, incels. Like, a couple of corrections do not a novel make. No, no. Like, 
Yeah. Ugh, fuck off. Okay. Fuck off. Ugh. Um. So so let's put this to to rest right here. Mary Shelley did in fact write Frankenstein, and if you yeah, email me did. saying otherwise, <laughs> you can eat a dick. If you Venmo Scotty saying. <laughs> Or if you if you email Scotty saying that Mary <laughs> Shelley did Venmo not, they, they can Venmo me. You immediately Venmo me five dollars. You owe the 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 female identifying person in this <laughs> dynamic fucking five dollars. Yeah, um, and I $5. will find you on Venmo or PayPal. <laughs> Demand your money and, and stalk you yeah. until you give me my five dollars. Yeah, yeah, that sounds fair. So okay. yes, Mary Shelley did in fact write Frankenstein. So she finished writing in 1817 and the book was published anonymously in 1818. Uh, the first issue was 500 copies and Piercy had written a foreword uh, for it for her. Okay. And then in 1823, it was reissued with Mary finally credited as the author. And then again in 1831, uh, this version was heavily revised by Mary. And this is when it became just a massive success. And so most of the versions, like if you're going to read Frankenstein today, it's the 1831 version is the one you're most likely to get your hands on. So that's Frankenstein. Obviously that's uh, one of the big monsters, but it's important to note that even though Lord Byron did not finish his fragment of a novel, Mm -hmm. uh, his friend, John Polidori uh, basically took elements of it and wrote his own book called the vampire. It heavily borrowed from Byron's book to the point where actually it was originally published with Lord Byron as listed as the author. But Lord Byron himself and John Polidori both have come out and said, no, John Polidori wrote it. Byron didn't write it. I think it sounds like he just sort of took some ideas from Lord Byron, but then mm-hmm. wrote his own thing. It was published in 1819, and it was a massive, like, popular success at the time. Now, the vampire is obviously not very well-remembered unless you're a horror fan, but it sort of introduced the modern conception of a vampire Mm -hmm. as this effete, aristocratic, charming, mysterious stranger. So the story basically was this this Englishman uh, named Aubrey. He falls under the thrall of this mysterious aristocrat named Lord Ruthven. And Lord Ruthven was modeled on Lord Byron, apparently. (laughs) <laughs> um he travels like, is that flattering or is that not flattering? Uh, yeah i i, I want to know i want to know a little bit more about john polidori's like views of lord byron like they were supposedly yeah. friends but he did turn him into a murderous vampire in his books so. yeah but i just wonder if byron was like make him make him taller just like, <laughs> give him more hair like yeah dashing like a dashing brow <laughs> you know yeah that that seems totally uh that's from everything i know about lord byron that kind of tracks (laughs) um so tells the story of this englishman named aubrey falling under the thrall of the mysterious lord ruthven uh he travels extensively with him going to rome and then to greece and they're being trailed by a series of murders and over time it's revealed that ruthven is the murderer and he's Mm. a vampire okay um so it it was a big success and when he was putting together his own vampire book, like 80 years later, Bram Stoker read Polidori's The Vampire mm-hmm. and used it as one of the models for his own Dracula. Okay. So this is how Mount Tambora gave birth to both Frankenstein and Dracula. 
Yay! The end. The end. Thank you. This is my book report. Um, yeah. do, did the idea of vampires exist? I mean, I guess they kind of did, right? Like these sort of yeah. blood-sucking, deathless yes. creatures. Yeah, so vampire myths have been around for like, I mean, since essentially the beginning of time. And like every culture has like different iterations of the vampire myth. But uh, in Europe, they really, there was this real explosion in kind of the 1500s around vampire folklore. Okay. Um, but usually it was like small villages in Eastern Europe. And, and, and the typical vampire story would have been like, there's a vampire, mysterious vampire that is affecting the people in the town. And, you know, my sister died, but I think I saw her last night outside my window. So let's <laughs> dig her up chop her head off let's 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 go and you know just i just want to take a look at some dead bodies yeah. what a bunch of creepy fucks oh yeah no and they would they would dig people up chop their heads off fill their mouths with garlic pound a stake through them um or sometimes they would bury rebury the corpse beneath a river because it was thought vampires couldn't cross moving water um so so yeah the vampire myth was around but it was these like like little folkloric right sort of pockets and both Byron, you got to give him a little bit of credit, I guess, and John Polidori really created what we think of as like the modern vampire with mm-hmm. their Lord Ruthven, which of course, like there wouldn't be a, a Count Dracula without Lord Ruthven. Wow. Yeah. And all because a volcano decided to blow its top. Exactly. Fantastic. Well done. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> Super informative. All right. So and very turn. interesting. Okay. All right. So I am going to share with you the story of the curse of the Scottish play and the Mm. Astor Place riot. So I'm going to start off with a little bit of history about the Scottish play. Uh, I'm also going to have to like sage my entire life and do like a fucking (laughs) Olympia of everything because I'm just going to have to say the name of the play a lot during this story. So um, (laughs) better you than me. (laughs) Um. Okay, so I am talking about the play Macbeth, uh, written by William Shakespeare, about a couple who were ruined by their poisonous ambition. Uh, The exact date of the writing is unknown. Scholars kind of say that it happened anywhere between 1599 and 1606. Part of this, like, any of the dates for Shakespeare's writings are super, like, guesstimates, uh, because the plays weren't, like, written down, published release like he did them at his theater and they were cobbled together for the folios sort of from like what people remembered pages that they had of stuff the prompt book so all of it's all of it's a big guess was Um, um, real quick was the scottish play one of the ones that people have sort of tried to claim that he didn't write or is that I am trying to remember. I feel like everything I saw put him pretty firmly as okay. the the playwright, but there's because of the way that his plays were, you know, like actors would only get their lines and their cue lines. I, I think like everything for some people is kind of up for debate. Okay. Um, yeah, so but I'll, I'll take a look and I'll do that. That'll be my correction for next time. Okay. <laughs> um, <laughs> so exact date of the writing is unknown. Exact date of the first performance is also somewhat unknown, but I, but people generally think that it was 1606 was when the play premiered. Um, it's also known as short 
Shakespeare's shortest tragedy, though that could be because it was collected from <laughs> like the prompt book and all of the stuff. Yeah. Additionally, the script that is in the folio is the in the first folio is the only known like original script. There is like it doesn't exist anywhere else outside oh, wow. of the folio. Yeah. So there's that. Um, so already there's a lot going on with this play. It's based on the actual Macbeth from Scotland who ruled over part of modern day Scotland from 1040 until his death in 1057. The play was pretty inspired by stories of witch trials that were taking place in Scotland during this time, which really, really, really messed with King James I. <laughs> like, this guy was super, super creeped out by witches. Um, he, he was just like, he was really obsessed with them. He was like, what are the witches doing? He constantly thought that they were cursing him. There actually is a story that... <laughs> <laughs> that there was a coven of witches during these witch trials that found out about it because King, King James I was, you know, the reason that they were being uh, uh-huh. persecuted and um, that they all like got together and cast a massive spell to sink <laughs> James I's like fleet. And apparently a ship did actually sink during this time. And so King James was like, oh, witches, y'all, witches are real. They are sinking my boats. Like he- Back when a crazy person who could be terrified of witches could rule an entire kingdom. Yes. And then was like, witches are bad. Declare it. Uh, make a proclamation. Like put, on the- Put that know, shit in law. <laughs> Essentially. Um, So obviously because of this, the witches, uh, also known as the Weird Sisters, play like a massive part in the story of Macbeth. Funny side note, King James I was so obsessed with witches and uh, like the occult and dark powers that the theme actually popped up all over theater during that time. It's actually why Marlowe's Dr. Faustus deals with the topics that it does because everybody was just like, okay, the king wants some stuff about some witches Uh, and like just writing a ton of stuff. So was King James, was he the king during the time of the writing or during the time of the actual Macbeth? During the time of the writing. Okay. Yeah. And like. So yeah, everyone's just lot. like. Yeah. For the audience he, of one. Let's keep yeah. being happy. Kind of. Yeah. Pretty much. Just like totally pandering to him. Um, yeah. He also happened to be a patron of Shakespeare's theater. So okay. they were just like dark magic all day long. Yeah. It's um, how I story, live my life. So. Yeah. I mean, who isn't like dark magic? 24-7. So the story was also inspired by Holland Shedd's Chronicles and George Buchanan's, I'm going to mess this up, Rerum Scoticarum Historia. That sounds cool. Yeah. And I think it was basically that. It was basically like spooky stories to tell in the dark, but you know, like old English. <laughs> old, old, old timey scary stories. Yeah. Yeah, which is basically just like evil is all around us. Mm. Within the play of Macbeth, Shakespeare also wrote a ton of references about politics, religion, and like all of King James's viewpoints thereof. Like there is, what I think is amazing, I know like people in the theater world, there's a lot of people who give Shakespeare a lot of slack because he was a white dude who wrote these plays. There's a lot of shit to step mm-hmm. to in his plays, a lot of like anti-Semitism, racism, yeah. 
hella misogyny. Um, But one of the things that I think does make Shakespeare a playwright worth examining is that he was able to add these like very, very timely, like Easter eggs or inside jokes within all of his scripts, but to do it in a way that, that they don't sound dated to modern audiences. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like you see a lot of in plays now, you see a lot of uh, modern references and it immediately dates the play immediately. Mm. So, I mean, I just think that's like something to like, you know, I mean, just like hot take. Shakespeare was a pretty good writer. <laughs> Listen, guys, unpopular opinion. <laughs> Shakespeare, not a bad writer. Not bad. The play also contains what is commonly thought of as the first knock-knock joke. Uh, <laughs> nice. Yeah, which happens. Uh, it's told by the porter in Act 2, Scene 3. So there's a little bit about the history oh, that's of... Cool of Macbeth. Okay. So the curse of this play, theatrical superstition says that the play is cursed. Uh, Mm. according to the superstition saying the name Macbeth, other than when speaking the name during rehearsal or performance equals disaster. (laughs) Um, (laughs) there are people who say that like the saying of the word at all in general in life, whether in a theater or out of the theater or whatever is bad luck. There are other people who say that, only in a theater and there are other people who say that it is only speaking the title of the play rather than the naming of the character that is cursed i mean i think i've only ever heard you refer to it as the scottish play really i don't you think don't, i've ever you heard don't you spend say enough like time that. in theaters <laughs> you don't spend enough time with us weirdos um acceptable alternatives to saying the the name slash word are McBee Mackers, the Scottish mm. play. I also heard a lot of references for the Bard's play. I have literally I've been doing this for like 20 some odd years. I've literally never heard anybody refer to it as the Bard's play. So Interesting. I think I have, I think I have that one up. I'll amend what I said. I have heard you call it Mackers before. Right. Yeah. And that's generally just it's and it's like seriously, even now I'm like super nervous about saying it. There's a ceiling fan in here. I'm convinced it's gonna fall <laughs> on me. Oh, okay. So origins of the curse slash why the curse is play or the play is cursed. This mm-hmm. <laughs> some of these are some of these are super cool. Some of them are utterly ridiculous. <laughs> um so Theory number one is that the play was extremely popular and frequently put on by plays that were in financial trouble. Mm-hmm. Okay. So th- that to me is something that it's like this play, like this theater did the Scottish play and then they went out of business and it's like, well, is that yeah. a curse or is that just like, <laughs> like, you know, the life of a theater maker? Yeah, exactly. Um, the second is that production costs of the play were so high that they caused, <laughs> they caused theaters producing the play to fall into financial ruin, which is another one that I'm like, I mean, that's utterly or, up to the that's theater. Like, well, that's like letting the theater off the hook for just like probably like bad business. Right. Curse or bad management. Um, yeah. Can't balance a checkbook. Yeah. <laughs> The next couple of ones are ones that I just, I think are fascinating. So the third one is that Shakespeare did a lot of heavy research, Mm. which to me seems a little unlikely, but did (laughs) like heavily researched witches in the writing of this play. Um, And so he ended up using actual incantations in the script. And therefore when the play is performed, 
actual demons are summoned by the witches in the play. I like that. I like it too, but this seems to be a rumor that was started by a Puritan 17th century preacher who hated theater, actors, and Christmas. As so, you do, if you're a Puritan. Yeah. So we got to take that one with a grain yeah. of salt. This, I think this one is my absolute favorite. So again, Shakespeare used actual incantations in the writing of the play and a local coven was like, that's a bunch of bullshit. You're not going to steal our intellectual property, (laughs) put it in this motherfucking play, you know, to make your king happy who wants to burn us all at the stake. F that cursed. Um, That I can buy. I can buy that one. That one is the one I actually I actually really like. Number five is that the actor playing the original Lady Macbeth died on opening night, August 7th, 1606. This one's actually okay. super easy to dispel because we don't uh, know when opening night was. Yeah, okay. Let alone who played Lady M. So for anybody who doesn't know sort of a, a bit of theater history here in Shakespeare's days, all of the female roles were played by young male players so this whole thing of like they knew who was playing it was probably played by like some fucking intern and like (laughs) you know nobody knows who he was so nobody would know if he was dead yeah Yeah, so we don't know we like we don't even know when it was written exactly let alone opening night Mm -hmm. this last one is also up there for me because there's a bit of there's a bit of like actually like you know might be true so the final theory is that abraham lincoln was reading macbeth the night before his assassination this might actually be true because the play was lincoln's favorite yeah creepy creepy um okay (laughs) yeah i'm sold okay done sold that's the end of my story (laughs) um okay so in order to break the curse there is a I mean, it is not an exaggeration when I say that there is a shit ton of believed rituals to do this. They may include any combination or all of the following. Exiting the theater, running around the building three times, turning around yourself three times, spitting over your left shoulder, tossing salt over your left shoulder, knocking on wood, reciting lines from another Shakespeare play, um, Angels and Ministers of Grace Defend, Uh, defend us being a popular one brushing yourself off this next one makes me mad because it doesn't make any sense (laughs) saying Macbeth three times and like the thing that bothers me about that one is that I have heard modern day actor this isn't like oh this is part of the lore I've heard modern day actors be like you have to say it and I'm like how can I undo a curse of saying a name by saying it? That makes no yeah. sense to me. It also sounds like how you summon Candyman. So, <laughs> so go in the bathroom, look yeah. in the mirror, turn off the lights and say Macbeth three times. Um, <laughs> to continue the list, cursing or swearing, knocking. Oh, and then you have like a lot of these superstitions say that you have to knock on the door to the theater to be let back into it, that you like that you cannot be, or that you cannot be let back into the building until you've been invited back in. But that might just be some like light theater hazing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah I don't know. That, yeah. I, don't yeah, really I know. could believe that. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, okay. So there is a long list of proof that the play is cursed. And I'm going to uh, go through some of those examples now. Cool. Again, starting with the first production being cursed from the get go, allegedly with the actor playing Lady M dying. It also said, so like Shakespeare had to go on stage. It's real, it's real Shakespeare in love. Mm. Probably 
prop daggers mysteriously being replaced with real ones, resulting in the death of the actor playing King Duncan. Oy. Yeah. Uh, in 1721, a performance was... <laughs> A performance was disrupted by an audience member, which led to the disgruntled band burning the theater down. (laughs) (laughs) Which to me is just the, like, they're like, this fucking, this fucking guy came to this play. He's drunk. He puked in the aisles. God damn it. Burn it all down. (laughs) Yeah, that they were like, who's with us? And then they burned the theater down. Uh, In 1775, the actor playing Lady M narrowly escaped being assaulted by the audience. I have found no other information about that. So Uh, I don't know. Yeah, I want to know what that was about. I don't know if they were just like, "Ah, this lady led to the, like, because of her, all of this hair, crazy ambition, and she ruined this good king. And ah." like, I don't know if it was that. I don't know if they hated his performance. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Like, I don't know. I, I don't I don't know what happened, but apparently they they wanted him real bad. Um, injuries sustained by actors during the 1937 Lawrence Olivier production. So that so that happened. Lawrence Olivier. Lawrence, I can't talk either. Lawrence <laughs> Olivier was doing a production, and apparently there were a bunch of injuries uh, to everybody in the cast. Diana Winyard fell during a 1948 production, mm. and Charlton Heston got burned during a 1954 production. Mm. In December I'm trying, 19- I'm Sorry, I just no. I'm trying to picture Charlton Heston doing Shakespeare. But. I'm, I really hope he was playing <laughs> Mackers because I'm just like, go fuck yourself. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Okay. In December 1964, Macbeth was playing at the D. Maria II National Theater in Lisbon, and the theater burned down. A 1980 production at the Old Vic starring Peter O'Toole was reviewed. This is another one. I'm sorry. (laughs) It was reviewed so badly that the company producing the play closed. (laughs) I don't know. Maybe you guys just suck. Maybe it's not a Yeah. No, people are like, was I bad? It was probably the curse. Yeah. Um, Mishaps on the set of the film Opera led director Dario Argento to proclaim the production cursed. The opera that they were doing in the movie was Macbeth. Yeah, I've actually Um, seen that movie. I didn't yes. know it was supposedly cursed though. That's interesting. In 19, this one's sad. In 1988, a Bulgarian singer, Boncho Bonchevsky, committed suicide during the intermission of Verdi's Macbeth by propelling himself over the balcony railing. Ooh. Yeah. Ari Aster, writer and director of Hereditary, yep. Yep. was told during filming about the curse and was like, all, oh, yeah, and said the name. And then literally they were like, okay, everybody calm down. Let's shoot this scene. And directly following that, a light exploded while they were filming that Oh, scene. shit. Yeah. So he was like, my bad. <laughs> like. <laughs> Go no, look in the mirror, sorry. say his name three times, run around the building. <laughs> run around the building, <laughs> spit, slaughter a calf, rub yourself in dirt. Um, Shove your mouth with garlic. Yeah. <laughs> and just in case anybody is going to like holler at me about editor- editorializing, that is actually how Ari Aster like <laughs> describes it that he was like i was like um, so don't come at me the last and most i guess the event that had the biggest consequences is mm. the astor place riot of 1849 so again this leads us into this is the last big event that people are like because of the curse, this happened. So on May 10th, 1849, uh, the Astor Place Opera, which was in New York City, 
happen like the riot happens there Mm -hmm. this riot it's a full-blown riot is born from a dispute between American actor Edwin Forrest and British actor William Charles McCready over who was the best Shakespeare actor. <laughs> I cannot, like, I I cannot think of anything that is, like, I, I, I just, <laughs> like, a riot erupted because yeah. they were like, no, I'm the best. No, I'm the best. No, I'm the best. <laughs> this effing dispute left between 22 and 31 people dead and over 120 people injured. Wow. About over who was the best. Who was the better actor. Shakespearean actor. The riot, I'll get into some more details of it, but just a quick overview. Um, it It caused the largest number of civilian deaths due to military action since the Revolutionary War. It led to police militarization in New York, which included riot control training and heavier weapons. What year? Um, what year this was, was 1849. Okay, so it was before the Civil War. Yes. Don't fucking fact check me Sorry. mid-story. <laughs> How dare you? Um, (laughs) Okay, so a little bit of background about what was going on at that time leading into this riot over who was a better actor. Um, Okay, so during the first half of the 19th century, theater was actually like a mass pop culture phenomenon. Um, Mm. It definitely was not seen the way that it is now, which is something that's kind of like hoity-toity, blah, blah, blah. Um, it It was pop culture. The stars of the stage were basically modern day like movie stars and they gathered huge like rabid followings of fans. Theaters were also uh, a lot rowdier than they are now. It was still much more in the vein of, you know, kind of what was going on with with Shakespeare's plays when he wrote them, which was like, you know, it was a place for people of all classes. It was it was supposed to be this conversation between performers and audience. At this time, especially, it was a place where people could come and sort of let their feelings known, not only about the play, but about the performers, about people in the audience. (laughs) (laughs) That all, like that, okay, I 100% get being like, this play sucks, or like, you know, screw Juliet, or whatever. I think it's hilarious to think of being at a theater and being like, yeah, fuck yeah, King Lear, Bob, you suck. Like, it's just, I bought bad meat at your grocery store, you fuck. Like, it's just insane to me. Theater riots were not uncommon in New York City. At this time. So in the early 1800s, American theater was dominated by British actors. Uh, So the rise of the American-born Edwin Forrest as a legit star was like this huge sense of pride for American theater goers. Additionally, this riot didn't come out of anywhere and had actually been brewing for quite some time because during this time there were a lot of civic disturbances uh, that pitted immigrants and nativists against each other and then also got the two of them together I think against the Irish. <laughs> as as yeah, that's as tracks. you do. Yeah. And um and against so like and then all of those guys banded together to sort of uh give the finger to the wealthy who controlled mm-hmm. politics and uh, right. uh and the police and the militia. Shakespeare being widely 
or, you know, whitely considered the pinnacle of (laughs) Anglo-Saxon culture is kind of born from this, which is just gross. Um, So also just like the Stamps Act riot also was like building on this kind of uh, crazy, like I said, anti-immigrant pro-nativist. This is like the gangs of New York era. Like 100%. And the nativist gangs and yeah. Yeah. And that'll actually come into play in a bit. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Actually, I think it's about to come into play right now. Um, Okay. So uh, Forrest and McCready were actually friends before all Mm. this happened uh, with uh, McCready widely being considered the greatest the greatest British actor of his generation and Forrest being widely considered the first American star. Their friendship basically went sour due to nasty Anglo-American relations and the question of who is the better actor, which was something that was spurned by both the British and American media. So that's, I guess, comforting to know that the media has always been like, let's just pour gasoline on this fire. (laughs) Yeah, and that's totally not the way things are today. Not at all. Everything, no. Everybody's super chill. Yeah. uh, Totally report just the facts. Also having like another sort of factor into this so that Americans were feeling a growing sense of alienation from the Brits. Yeah. Along with, along, here's here's where the Irish come into it. So feeling of alienation against the Brits along with these Irish immigrants, though, of course, like, so that's to say Americans were feeling alienated from the Brits. The Irish... Uh, Americans were feeling alienated from the Brits, but the Irish and the Americans also hated each other. Yeah. (laughs) Because, you know, the enemy of my enemy is my enemy. Yeah. Uh, That sounds sounds great. (laughs) Yeah, right? Just a a nice little hot boiling cauldron of civil unrest. There was also a class struggle between those who who supported Forrest and the upper crust who largely supported McCready. Like, Mm -hmm. Forrest was very much seen as this, like, you know, I don't know if blue collar would be the right word, but he was of the people, right? And like he would play in the theaters in the Bowery, which is like, you know, we're talking about five points right there. We're talking about audiences that were largely working class or largely immigrant based, whereas the uh, the bougie upper crust were like, well, we prefer McReady um, mm-hmm. because we like we like nice white things. Shakespeare's work, his plays actually became the battleground for this feud in the United States um, because the U.S. had yet to establish sort of like its own theater traditions, and they used his works as a way to like prove our our cultural prowess. Like, mm-hmm. hey guys, we've got we've <laughs> like we've got cool stuff going on too in the U.S. Many Americans, this came up a lot, many Americans claimed that had Shakespeare been alive at the time, he would have been an American (laughs) at heart, at the very least. Uh, I don't know why they thought that, but they really wanted to like stake their claim. After all his pandering to the king, of course. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Total, yeah, like total slave to the monarchy, but for sure uh, an American at heart. So Forrest and McCready were like absolute fucking babies about this whole thing. There was no sense of like, hey man, like you're a great actor. I'm a great actor. Like, you know, you don't, your greatness doesn't take away anything from my greatness. Like they were absolute children about the whole thing. They would like follow each other on tour 
most information says that this was mostly Forrest doing this to McCready, <laughs> but like McCready would go to Boston and play Hamlet. And then like three weeks later, Forrest would show up and play Hamlet. And mm. like, it was yeah. a bunch of uh, stuff like that. Forrest actually went to go see McCready in a production of Hamlet and hissed during the performance. <laughs> and then after that, McCready announced that Forrest was without taste, which I imagine coming from a Brit is like the height of insult. So during McCready's third and final trip to the U.S., all of this, it's just so funny because it's so extreme. So during McCready's last and final uh, trip to the U.S., somebody threw half of a dead sheep at him (laughs) while he was on stage. And McCready was like, I'm fucking done. Like, I am yeah. done. Um, yeah, there was like a whole bunch of like sort of old timey cancel culture stuff going on here yeah. with the means that they had necessary, which was to be like, you're very bad. Well, you're very bad. Well, here's a dead sheep. Um, <laughs> Less so, effective, maybe. Then. <laughs> yeah. Um, so like I said, Forrest was like really connected to a, 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 a like a well-built fan base in the working class and the gangs of New York. Like I said, he, he debuted at the Bowery Theater, which had a, a, an immigrant-heavy Five Points neighborhood audience. Yeah. His fans admired his muscular frame and impassioned <laughs> delivery over McCready's decidedly British... Murka! Everything, yeah. yeah total Murka. So uh, this is where... Can I say this? I'm going to go ahead and say this. And if you want to come at me, come at me. Mm-hmm. Um, this is where New York's upper crust fucked American theater. Yeah. Like into the ground. So the upper crust was like, we love going to the theater, but we don't like mingling with the riffraff. So we're going to build our own separate theater. And like at this time, the upper crust was notorious for doing this. They were like, Mm -hmm. we want to go on vacation, but we don't want to mingle with like commoners. So we're going to build this. We're going to like come into this idyllic town, build a resort. Nobody can be here, but us, everybody else get out. Thanks. Bye. And then, you know, like, (sighs) Yeah, it goes on and on and on. But so they decided that they wanted to have a theater where they could be with their own kind and not have to mingle with the lower classes. So they decided to build the Astor Place, uh, the Astor Place, sorry, am I getting this right? With the Astor Place Opera House. They also installed a dress code, which included that you had to wear kid gloves and white vests, which very clearly (laughs) was the thing of being like, you are not allowed in here. Yeah. Which super sucks. And again, before this, theaters were really seen as a place where people from all walks of life could mingle. It was really a place for everybody. But the New York elite is literally quite responsible for making theater bougie. So there you go. Okay. Thanks, guys. Thanks. (laughs) Thanks, Obama. Um, (laughs) I had to. Okay. So... What happens next is that McCready's scheduled to appear at the Astor in the role of Macbeth, while Forrest mm-hmm. was uh, slated to play the same role at the huge Broadway theater. It took me forever to find anything about Broadway theater because when you Google Broadway theater, it's just going to Broadway. Just yeah, it's going to take you to Broadway. Yeah. yeah, and then there wasn't there was. Like, I was like, okay, let's try the Broadway theater, which led me to a theater that I think opened in like the late 30s, which obviously wasn't this. 
finally figured it out that it is, I think something, I think it was called the old Broadway theater. This motherfucker sat 4,000 people. Holy shit. Yeah. And they came to see the Scottish play. Okay. So three nights before the riot, Forrest's supporters bought up the entire top level of the Astor place. So they basically pulled like a TikTok revolution (laughs) (laughs) and like bought up all the top tier tickets, went to the show and proceeded to throw rotten eggs, fruit, vegetables, shoes, bottles of stinking liquid. Mm, Wonder what that is. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> and that's all it says in quotes, stinking liquid. Um, they ripped up the seats. They shouted, they shouted down with the codfish aristocracy, <laughs> which I mean, that sounds bougie. So I don't, I don't understand what happened there. Um, the actors, including McReady in like the most righteous display of staying in the moment finished the fucking play. That's impressive. <laughs> In pantomime, because no one could be heard. In pantomime. (laughs) Yeah. That's even more impressive. Yeah, yeah. So meanwhile, so while that's happening, Forrest is doing his macros over at the Broadway theater, and like people are like losing their minds. They're standing, they're shouting, like the play keeps being brought to a halt because people are just like, this is the best thing I've ever seen. After after this performance, McCready announced that he was on the next boat back to England, but was persuaded by just 47 Richie Riches to like stick around. This included Herman Melville and Washington Irving, who told McCready that, quote, the good sense and respect for order prevailing in this community will sustain you on the subsequent nights of your performance, end (laughs) quote. Uh, So McCready again took the stage on May 10th. All of this stuff was brewing Mm-hmm. Like every, every, like it, you could just tell it was in the air that, that everything was going to go tits up. Uh, on May 10th, the police chief told the new Whig mayor of New York that he didn't have the resources to quell a serious riot. So the mayor, instead of being like, okay, no, this is stupid. Cancel both of the productions or like, like right. figure some out solution. He was like, you know what? Call in the militia. So yeah. he calls in <laughs> the seventh... <laughs> Right, because nothing brings peace and order like a militia. Um, So the 7th Regiment, along with mounted troops and light artillery, joined 100 police officers outside and 150 police officers inside the theater. They also sent cops, again, like in completely unsurprising news, they sent officers to protect the upper tens, who mm-hmm. were um, the wealthy and elite in the area. To be clear, they were not sent to protect the people. They were sent to protect the property. Yeah, because America. Because America. Um, okay, so while that's happening, the other side was prepping as well. So they were handing out leaflets and handbills, mm-hmm. posters. Uh, they were putting up posters in saloons. They were inviting working men and true patriots <laughs> to show out, to show up and show their, uh, their true feelings for the British. Free tickets for McCready's uh, Mackers were like handed out as were plans on where to deploy for the evening's protests, riots, yeah. whatever. By the time the show started, which was 7.30, up to 10,000 people had shown up and all hell broke loose after that. 
relays. <laughs> so they were doing a thing where they were literally doing relays to stow to throw stones. So I think like somebody would throw a stone and then like back to the end of the line to find another stone. So they could just have like a continuous line of stone throwers. Um, They were throwing stones at the theater. There were fights with the police. There were attempts both inside and outside of the building to burn the theater down. Um, Again, with all of this going on, McCready still managed to finish the show. I mean, you got to give the guy some credit. Well, the whole yeah. cast. Yeah. Like, uh, like, literally, the theater was beginning to fall down on the audience. <laughs> and they were like, the show must go on. Okay, so all of this is happening. Authorities call in the troops at 9.15. Obviously, nobody likes that. And the soldiers completely yeah. get attacked. Uh, at this point, the soldiers all line up and opened fire. Uh, first they shot into the air, but then like point blank into the crowd. Many of the people who were killed were innocent bystanders and almost all the casualties were working class, of course. Oh, this breaks my heart. Injured and dead were dragged into nearby saloons and shops. The next morning, mothers and wives combed the streets and morgues looking for their loved ones. Yeah. And again, it's just this thing of like, how dare you, like, how dare you tear down our building? Well, like, you shot people. Let's focus on what's important. Um, So the the Aster was left looking like, quote, a fortress besieged by an invading army rather than a placement for the peaceful amusement of civilized community, end (laughs) quote. So the next night they hold like a, a... a town meeting in the middle of New York city. Um, and the people couldn't even hold it together for, during the meeting, a young boy was killed in the melee at this point. At the the meeting. Yeah. At the meeting. So like the riot has happened the night before. I think the mayor is like, okay, okay. Sorry. Totally. My bad. Let's have a meeting to like talk about this at that meeting. Everybody loses their shit. And a young boy is killed at that point. The crowd is like, Look this. And so they march up Broadway fighting with mounted troops from behind improvised barricades, but authorities quickly got the upper hand. Yeah, probably after a lot more firepower, I would think. Yeah, a lot more firepower. They're just, I mean, unevenly matched all the way around. So in the aftermath of this, again, between 22 and 31 rioters were killed, 48 were wounded. 50 to 70 policemen were injured and 141 militia were injured by projectiles. Mm. Um, Three judges ended up presiding over the related trials. Of course, all of the judges were like this riffraff, like this isn't civilized society. You're bad, you're bad, you're bad. New York's elite unanimously praised the authorities for their work, which is not at all surprising. Though Forrest's reputation was badly damaged by the riot, his style of acting, this is actually kind of fascinating. His style of acting is actually what you see when you watch early Hollywood films and people like John Barrymore. Oh, so like his, his acting legacy continued far beyond the stage. The Aster did not survive the riot. In burlesque and minstrel shows of the day, it was referred to as the Massacre Opera House or Dis... Aster place Mm -hmm. Um, and the building eventually went to the New York Mercantile Library. The elite's need for an opera house led to the opening of the Academy of Music at 15th and Irving Place, far, far away from the working class precincts. But the new venue was decidedly less separated by class than the former 
had been. So I guess that's good. So this is, and like this last thing is probably the most lasting result of the Astor Place riot because it furthered the class alienation and segregation in New York City and the rest of the country. Mm -hmm. Um, And that was instrumental in the entertainment world being separated into respectable and working class uh, entertainment. It became divided by class lines with opera being for the upper middle class and upper and upper class minstrel shows and melodramas for the middle class and variety shows and concert saloons for the working class and slumming middle class. This, and again, this is probably the thing that breaks my heart the most, this stupid ass riot over two white dudes who couldn't decide who was the better Shakespeare actor caused Shakespeare to be gradually removed from popular culture to the new category of highbrow entertainment. And that is the story of the curse of the Scottish play and the Astor Place riot of 1849. Wow. That's, that's like a wild ride. Yeah. Right. Like, and as I was like doing the research for it and seeing all of this stuff about like how up to that point, Shakespeare had really been for everybody and theater Mm. had really been for everybody. And that it was this that really cemented it into being like, and, and like, even now, I mean, I've had people tell me that theater is like the blue class art form because opera and the ballet, which is something that I saw here that, that, Mm -hmm. that like class segregation continued to to um fall into so that like opera and ballet were really the highbrow yeah. uh classy entertainment theater was kind of like for the middle class and then you had everything you had you know the other like vaudeville and yeah and that's yeah. you know that's where then you start to i think get into things like burlesque and blah 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 but to see that like that class separation happened obviously i have a very personal reason for that pissing me off just because I know I've talked to so many people that are like, I don't go to the theater because I don't think a person like me is welcome there. And to think that that was something that happened by a bunch of, you know, white people over 150 years ago who were just like, we don't want to have to sit next to like a dock worker just makes my blood boil. Yeah. Well, and I mean, I mean, it is fascinating because like, you know, I just remember being back in high school and mm-hmm. having to study Shakespeare. And mm-hmm. I went into it with the idea of like Shakespeare, this hoity-toity, you know, whatever. And I yep. remember having an English teacher really make the point, like Shakespeare was, you know, sort of the, because I was a big Stephen King fan even at the time. And my teacher was like, you know, Shakespeare was kind of like the level of like a Stephen King of his day, you know, this big popular author. Yeah. And it's really fascinating to see how like this one event is really responsible for yeah that change in perception yeah and again you know a thing of like (laughs) this is that was the other thing i kept thinking you know that there are people out there that are like i don't understand why these these riots nowadays have to like destroy property and like why do they have to do all this like why can't there be like a civilized form of protest and i'm like one modern day white folk will riot over a sports Mm -hmm. game and yeah. two, I lived in Boston during the World Series. So. Yes, and two, <laughs> the like largest cause of civilian deaths, aside from the fucking American Revolution, to that point happened because two white dudes couldn't decide who was the better actor. Yeah, like it, it is utterly ridiculous, and to see uh, just the super lasting Im- uh, uh, implications of that riot. Yeah, it makes me really sad. Yeah. Well, yeah, because, I mean, I know, like, 
you know, with your theater company, it's something you struggle with today is like trying to yeah. make Shakespeare or other classics accessible or to just or theater. anything theater accessible to an audience that, like you said, doesn't feel welcome at theater. Yeah. And it's yeah. all because and of these bougie New Yorkers. These dude. fucking bougie bastards. You yeah. bougie bastards. <laughs> uh, I'm coming for you. <laughs> that should be the title of this episode is you bougie bastards. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. Lock yeah. it. Put it in the can. <laughs> all right. Well, I guess that is the first episode of The Weirdest Thing. So. Yay. Yeah, we made it through it. We made it through it. We I feel it. like my my whole body is crying. <laughs> I was very nervous about that for some reason. Yeah. But it helped well, that you went first. Were you nervous? Uh, I was when I started. <laughs> but I feel um, like once you I got, got going, then it was fine. But yeah, I feel like you were so heavily researched. Yeah. Yeah, there was fantastic. a lot of a lot of uh, dates that nobody's going to remember there, <laughs> but. <laughs> Well, anyway, well, thank you, everybody, for turning in, for turning in, tuning for turning in. in, for turning in and tuning out. <laughs> yeah, and we will uh, come back at you next week with uh, another episode. I think we're talking about um, Impressisi and Elizabeth Bathory. So, yeah. All right. Well, I guess that's it. We're gonna sign All off. Right. Talk Bye. to you next time. Bye. your mind with the finest nonsense we could find might be true and that's the weirdest thing